why don't we pray, and then we will move into our time of uh, learning through God's story and through His Word. So, if you feel inclined, would you close your eyes with me as we pray? Father, I'm grateful that you are present with your people. Jesus, I thank you that you have come, and yet we are still awaiting your arrival in full. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you guide us into the way of peace. In your beautiful name, amen. Amen. Well, as we heard from the reading of Advent from Jenny and Tamar, This week, in some tradition, symbolizes and goes back to John the Baptist. An invitation for us to repent. Some of you instantly felt the churning inside of you because that word is just not a nice word. But maybe if we put it this way, to turn. An invitation that is actually better than where you are. That is the invitation of repentance That John the Baptist declared, as he said, prepare the way of the Lord. Let the valleys be brought up. Let the mountains be brought low. Let the rough be made smooth. The Lord is on the way and all people will see his salvation. That is what we are celebrating this week at Advent. But today, during this time, I want to go back one step. Not to John the Baptist, but to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 68. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68, actually 67. This is the the point, as I was reading, as I was praying and preparing, this was the, the main takeaway that I had after steeping myself in Zechariah's song this week. That Zechariah teaches us that we can be confident in God's redemption even when it feels like it hasn't happened yet. That we can be confident in the redeeming work of God even if we feel like it hasn't happened yet. Over the last three years... The Advent season, Zechariah, more than any other character in the story, has caught my attention. The last three years, Zechariah is the person I go back to, and I'm drawn to Zechariah because I feel like his story is slightly more approachable than Mary's. Just slightly. One, that might be because I'm a man. The second is because I appreciate how he responded to the divine arrival. So there's three reasons, three parts of Zechariah's story that I'm drawn to. The first is this. He thought he was prepared for God's arrival and he wasn't. He thought he was prepared, but he wasn't. When we read at the beginning of Luke, we see that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless before God. He served as a priest before God. He was on service in the temple of worship when not God, but an angel came. And how did he respond? It says he was gripped with fear. I don't know if I can actually describe that feeling, but some of you might have moments where you were gripped 
The whole of your being was brought into this position of being afraid, of being confused. And I love that Zechariah has a loose tongue. It's like a loose cannon. If you look with me in verse 18, how does Zechariah respond? Again, not to God's arrival, but an angel. The angel says all these wonderful things, and this is what Zechariah says. How can I be sure of this? We have Mary, who said, let it be so. We have Zechariah. How can I be sure? Zechariah thought he was prepared, but he wasn't. And I feel like I'm drawn to that part of the story because often I think I know how God's going to show up because He would show up the way I would show up. Or He would show up the way that I would want God to show up. And while we might laugh, Zachariah's instinct to trust common sense over this mysterious unfolding of the narrative of God is something that I believe is the easier option. Seeing that which is common sense, not this mysterious plan that God has, that him and his wife would bear a child in old age. Where have we seen that in the story of God before? Sometimes we think that we're prepared and when we're not. The first time I was invited to go to a spin class, I thought it was a dance activity. True story. Sometimes we think we are prepared and we are not. That's the first reason. The second reason I love Zachariah's story is this. God gives him an opportunity to reflect. God gives him an opportunity to remember some of the story. If you know what happens with Zechariah, this is what the angel Gabriel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. If that's not a flex, I don't know what is. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day it happens. Because you did not believe my word, which will come true at the appointed time. Something better is on the burner. Maybe you've been to someone's house. When I was in Ukraine, this happened often, where the first uh, course, which was borscht often, soup, came forth, and they just kept bringing the borscht. I ate endless amounts of borscht. And then salad. And then we had often a rice dish. And then the pork neck, shashlik, on the grill. Something better is on the burner, the angel says, but you will be silent until that better heart arrives and then you will know that this is true. God gives Zachariah an opportunity to take his story off the top of the mantelpiece like the trophies we put up of ourselves and rather envelop all that we are, all that Zachariah is into the greater story of what God is doing. And after this, this leads to our text this morning. The last reason why I'm inspired by Zechariah. So he felt like he was prepared and he wasn't. He was actually given an opportunity to be silent and reflect, which can be difficult. And lastly, Zechariah practices the prophetic. Zechariah practices the prophetic and prepares us to have a prophetic imagination 
as the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says. The first words of Zechariah are naming how God has worked in the past and how this God is still acting in the present to bring us to the future where we are not yet arriving to, but on the way. Look with me, verse 67 of our text. Zechariah has been silent. His baby has been born. The name has been confirmed. John. And these are the first words uttered from him. Verse 67. His father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is the first time in Luke that we see this word prophecy or prophesying arriving. The Spirit fills Zechariah and he speaks forth something that is called prophetic. Some of you hear that word and you also cringe within because I believe prophecy has been often very misunderstood. I think our misunderstanding has led it, maybe some of you experienced this at the Christmas party, to navigate around prophecy. Just like that person at the party that you're like, oh, I just wish that person didn't know that I was here. Paul says this is the gift that we should yearn and desire the most, and yet it's greatly misunderstood. Similar to our bounded and fuzzy, wet, saved thinking, there's two, two big extremes that we can fall into with this word prophecy or the prophetic. The first is that it becomes only future-oriented. You messed up now, God's going to pay you back later. This is a prophetic announcement. Nothing to do with the present, only the future. That's often associated with the bounded set way of thinking. But a fuzzy set way of thinking sees prophecy only in the now. Nothing in the future. It's only that which our hands can do now. Some of us might call this social action or social justice. We have to enact the judgment of God in the present. But both misunderstand the beauty of what prophecy is. What I believe, and as I'm still learning, I don't have it all together, but that prophecy is not this blind guess at the future, nor is it a forcing of heaven into the present, but the prophetic is an attentiveness and a willingness to speak how God has and is creating an alternative community to bless the whole world. The prophetic is seeing and naming how God has and is creating an alternative community to bless the whole world that are being led to the fullness of restoration. Prophecy is a reflection and naming of God's consistency in showing up throughout the story of humanity. The consistency of God interacting with the inconsistency of humanity. Walter Brueggemann, again, uh, a scholar that I've learned a lot from on this topic. This is what he says. Prophetic ministry has not to do primarily with addressing specific public crises, but with addressing in season and out of season the dominant crisis that is enduring and resilient of having our alternative vocation co-opted and domesticated. Put simply, we're forgetting that we are the people of God and we're forgetting that God is a real character in the story 
and the active agent of transformation. When we forget that God is a real character in this story, and when we forget that he is the active agent of transformation of all things. This is what Brueggemann says prophetic ministry speaks to. Saying we are an alternative community. Bringing blessing to all people. And this is what I believe Zachariah is just tapping the surface of. Before Jesus is yet to be born. And I believe there's a great need for us to grow in this prophetic witness in our current time of waiting. That we remember the larger story of God's redemption in the past so that we would not lose confidence to mention and see how God is working in the present. And how God is bringing about the future restoration of all things. And so we look to Zechariah, our teacher, to practice the prophetic, to practice speaking. Where are we in the story of God? How is God working now and where are we going? Zechariah stands as our teacher. And so this prophecy that we see, this song, the Benedictus, some scholars call it, of Zechariah, can be split into two sections. The first section, which is verse 68 to 75, is looking at the past. What has God done? A, a, a step that I know I often forget. I get so focused in the now that I actually forget how God has worked in the past. And the second part, starting in verse 76, 76 Zechariah focuses on, the, on God's promise to work in the present, moving to the future. So two sections. Let's start in verse 68. So if, again, if you have your Bibles, or if you want to turn there in some form, this is what we read. Verse 68. Praise to the Lord. The God of Israel, for He has come to His people and redeemed them. Zechariah's first words after his tongue is loosed is praise. And it's not only a praise. It is arguably the summary statement of the whole story of God and His people. Zechariah embodies the confidence in God's redemption even when it hasn't happened yet in the person of Jesus. Jesus has not yet been born and Zechariah already is praising God. God has already come, he says, to his people. God has already redeemed his people. The word that starts this, blessed or praise... This term is reserved for God and His ladling of His goodness on His people. We see Jesus blessing children as they come to Him. We see Jesus blessing the bread as He feeds the 5,000. We see Jesus receiving blessing as He rides into Jerusalem. People declaring, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God's hand is upon this one. God's blessing. Deserving of praise. Jesus blesses the bread and wine the night that He is betrayed. God's favor has bestowed, been bestowed upon Christ. God's light is seen in the darkness. Zechariah prophetically declares that God is alive, that God is active, 
And that God is actually worth being acknowledged as affecting all the things that are. All things touched by the restorative and transformative presence of the Creator who are enabled to worship and praise. This is how he begins. I'm stunned by the fact that Zechariah mentions praise to God before two things. Before his own newborn son is even mentioned in this text. And before Jesus is born. I'm not a father. I've had a nephew born last week. But I'm stunned that the first words of Zechariah make no mention yet of his newly born son that should not be breathing because he is too old, his wife is too old, and yet God mysteriously allowed them to have this baby child named John. And yet, Zechariah does not yet mention him. Because, instead, the first important thing that Zechariah sees is that he has to mention how God is active in this situation. Praise be to God. He has come to His people. He has redeemed them. This is the first thing off Zechariah's lips. Before mentioning anything else, Zechariah teaches us to be aware of how God has already arrived. Before that which we hope him to arrive to, we say he has already arrived. And that leads to three, three themes that I see Zechariah show in the remaining of, of this, um, this song of praise. The first, which I've already mentioned, is that God is worthy of praise because he arrives. He has arrived and he is arriving still. The second is this. God is worthy of our praise, not simply because he arrives, but when he arrives, he brings redemption and restoration. The two go part and parcel. God arrives, there is restoration. There is redemption. And third, not only does God arrive and is arriving, not only does he redeem and is restoring, but God is worthy of praise because he enables and empowers his people to be light on earth. He enables and empowers his people to be his light on the earth. So the first point, as we continue on in our text, is the truth that God has arrived. He mentions this in the remainder of this song of praise numerous times. And this is why, I've been challenged this week, this is why knowing the story of Scripture is crucial to our life of following Jesus. I mean actually reading Scripture. Not dwelling on Scripture that you read when you were 14 or when you were baptized. Actively reading even when you feel like you leave and like, I didn't even get a nugget of goodness today. I didn't get anything. Reading Scripture is important because it frames us within this grander story. Pastor John here references when when we're reading in the New Testament and we see these words that are like hyperlinks to something that's happened before. And so there's hyperlinks all throughout this passage as Zechariah starts the song of praise. This is what we read. 
Starting again in verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He said through His holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham. What Zechariah is saying is, before Jesus has yet even come, God has already arrived. When we hear the God of Israel, we're brought back to the Exodus narrative of God naming this people who are small, who are not actually worthy or large or something to be noticed. And he said, you are my people. It leads Moses to sing praise in Exodus 14 and 15. We see He has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of our servant David. And we go to 2 Samuel 22. When David declares, the Lord is the horn of salvation. We continue to go through this text. The prophets from long long ago. His holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham when he split animals in two and laid them across this red carpet and says, Let this happen to the person who does not hold up their end of the covenant. And yet God is present. Zechariah is referring back to all of these stories saying God has arrived time and time and time again to bring restoration. Zechariah knows the story and points back. He knows how God has acted. God's arrival, His restoration, and His empowerment. What I also love from this passage is the main word to describe God's character is mercy. Sometimes we jump over that. Mercy. Loyal love. A love that does not flee. One who is actually not quick to judge, but quick to invite. Mercy. This God has shown mercy to our ancestors. A love that is consistently bound to a people who are consistently rebellious. This is why He continues to arrive. Even when we read the God of Israel, that might not actually be something that God would be proud of. I'm God of a people, if we know our history, a God of a people who have divided themselves. Worshipping other gods. The people that because of their idolatry have led to be taken over by Assyria. And then Babylon. And then the Persians. And then the Greeks. And then at this time the Romans. And yet God says, my loyal love is to the people of Israel. Zechariah, the one who doubted God's active presence, now says that God arrives Because of his mercy. How can I be sure of this? Maybe just going back, as we hear of God's arrival, and the second point that with God's arrival, he brings restoration. How quick are you to actually mention God in any of your stories of success? How quick are you? 
to even mention God as a point of blessing. The God who's arrived, the God who is restored time and time again. Out of his loyal love. How, when do you mention the blessing that this God has shown? Do you mention? Is it a token mention of like, yeah, yeah, God was there. But really, I know what I'm doing. Maybe it's an afterthought. Maybe for me, when I'm, when I'm challenged often, when I'm serving at a local high school, when I get asked hard questions, it can easily turn into a mumble. Like, yeah, God, yeah, it's because of God, that's why I'm here. Hoping that actually no one hears. So Zechariah reminds us that this God has arrived. This God who has arrived time and time again restores, brings redemption. Zechariah is practicing the prophetic and he invites us to practice the same thing. To practice believing that God is a real character, an active agent of change, of restoration in the world, before we even taste that redemption in the full. And so as we look at this list of God's arriving, God's restoring of Israel, where are you awaiting restoration? Where are you actually awaiting something in your life to be redeemed or restored? Perhaps in your family, a relationship that was broken or hurt. Where are you awaiting restoration with colleagues from work? Where are you awaiting restoration in your finances? How you spend your money, where your money is. Where are you awaiting restoration in ways that you're trying to build community here at Reality? Maybe you're like, it's not actually working. Lord, come, redeem, restore. Where are you awaiting? Waiting for God to arrive. And so now, just as you have that thought, I just invite you to bring one thing. One thing to the front of your mind. It doesn't have to be big. But I want us to practice this prophetic imagination together. Holding that image, that person, that thought, that experience, that situation. I just want you to to imagine your place within it. And I'm just going to read Luke 1, verse 68, three times. Just as a practice. Reminding ourselves that God has actually already arrived. And so as you bring that to the fore, hear the song of Zechariah over that situation. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has come to His people and He has redeemed them. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has arrived and He redeems. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has come to His people.
He has redeemed them. While it sounds simple, I believe that even just declaring that is a practice as is a practice of us being prophetic in the world when we say that we actually believe that God has already redeemed. And yet we've covered the first two and there's still the third, that God empowers. He enables. We read this in verse 74, that all of this arriving of God and the redemption is to enable us, Zechariah says, to enable us to serve Him. This word also means worship. Don't think just active service alone, but, but a life that is serving in worship before our God enables us to serve and worship Him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before Him all of our days. For eternity, we've been enabled to worship and to serve. God never arrives to simply prove to you that he's better than you. That hit me this week. That's not why God comes. Just to prove that he's better than who you are. He actually says, you have been accepted and approved and restored. Go and worship. You are my people and are a light to the world. I think it's funny that God made it a requirement to use us, his own stubborn and rebellious people, in his adventing of himself to other people. I think it's hilarious that God has made it a requirement by his love that we are used in this grand narrative of worshiping God and being a light to others. To be prophetic witnesses, to be people naming God's activity in the world, making room for pain and strife, rejection and lament. And at this point of empowerment and enabling, we see a shift or a pivot point from the past reality of God's presence that Zechariah talks about to naming God's future work starting in the present. So if you look with me in verse 76, now's the time. He says, we've been enabled to serve God in holiness and righteousness without fear. And now he looks to the child that he may be holding. His newborn son, the promise that he couldn't believe nine months earlier, says this, you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You, child, you are the promise of God. The God who is real. The God who is an agent of change. You have been empowered and enabled to prepare for God's arrival yet again. And I do believe that this invitation, John's role in pointing others to Jesus is an invitation for us using the last of this song as finding three reminders for us in this Advent season of not only how we can wait, but how we can actively live, serve, and worship. The first is this. 
we need to remember the fact that God is on the way and prepare ourselves for that. We read, You, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. Since Jesus is on the way, we need to do the work of preparation. The, uh, the prophet Isaiah says that we need to be leveling the mountains of our ego, filling the valleys of our self-doubt, smoothing the potholes of greed that we have in our life, preparing our hearts, sanding down our anger and our strife with those around us. I love this, that Zechariah likens the arrival of God to the arrival of, uh, the, arrival of the sun at dawn. Sure. Steady, illuminating, inevitable, invasive, and yet saturated with the light of hope. This is the image by which the rising sun will come to us from on high to shine on those living in darkness and those who are in the shadow of death. So first we need to prepare. God is on the way. He's arrived and is arriving. The second reminder is this, that we prepare ourselves by remembering that God has redeemed us and Jesus is still doing that redeeming work. Zachariah says this, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. We might say saved from what? We're not under the tyranny of an oppressor here in Vancouver. But maybe it's the idolatry of ourselves and the possessions that we have. That the rising sun whisks away the mist that covers our life, the fog that deceives us that we are in charge or that we are in control or that we are deserving of praise. And this isn't just for the individual, it's corporately for the people of God. And how does he come? This is, what we, this is what we read. By the tender mercy of God. Earlier, Zechariah said, by the mercy of God, he's visited our forefathers, our ancestors. And now he says, by the tender mercy of God. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's splachna, which means inward bowels. It's personal. But it's tender. The tender mercy of our God is Jesus slowly shining forth His light from the deepest well of love. Like the opening of blinds slowly in the morning. Letting the sun saturate whatever room that you're sitting in. That you are able to see the way of life and freedom and you're invited into it. That God's motivation to arrive in your life actually flows out of the deepest form of compassion. The tenderest of mercies from the most inward of spaces of the one whom we call our God. The third is this. Not only do we prepare ourselves, not only do we remember that we've been redeemed, but last, that we are prepared to be guided into the way of restoration. This dawning light leads us to peace. Peace is this word. Going back to Shalom, John has mentioned this before. Full restoration. 
whole healing. And so often it's paired in Isaiah with joy. Peace and joy. This dawning light is meant to empower. To lead us to this alternative way of living rightly in holiness. Leading us to the place of rest with our God. Reality, this is Christ amongst us in this Advent season. He's the one who guides us into the way of full restoration and peace. He has arrived and is arriving. He's redeemed and is redeeming. He's enabled and is still enabling us to allow our feet one step in front of the other to be guided into the way of peace. And I believe that Zachariah's song is an invitation for us in this season to practice the prophetic, to name the reality that God has arrived in your life. That God has arrived and is still arriving in the most mundane parts of what you call your day-to-day. And that God does not simply arrive, but He is restoring. And also guiding you and us to a fuller understanding of ourselves and our world by understanding His grand story and His place within it. Emmanuel, God with us. And so, uh, as we close, uh, the, the music team can come up and there's three implications, three invitations that I have. The first is this. I challenge you in the next two weeks to read through the book of Isaiah. The whole book. It's a big invitation. It's a big book. And even if you don't make it all the way through and don't understand 80% of it, that's the invitation. To try. To learn some of the story that we find our, ourselves in. It's, it's a habit that I do every Advent season. And we still have two weeks left. So that's the first. Just familiar, familiarize yourself with the story of God through the prophet Isaiah. The second is this. Before getting up and when you go to bed, would you read Luke 168 over yourself? Just a simple act. If you're like, Isaiah's huge. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's okay. The laughter shows that that might be it. Second invitation. Before you go to bed and when you wake up, to pull out a hard copy book, to open it, to read Luke 1.68. Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because, because He has come to His people and He has redeemed them. The third invitation is this. Pay attention to one sunrise this week. It's actually supposed to be sun in the forecast every day. I don't know exactly what time uh, sunrise, I think is just after 7 right now. 7.56. You don't have to get up that early. But to pay attention to one sunrise, imagining that this is the tender mercy of God shining upon your life. This is how God arrives. So three things. Invite you to try to read Isaiah. Second, read Luke 168 before you get up, when you go to bed. And the third, before Christmas, just sit, pay attention to one sunrise. And say, this is how our God comes to his people, by his tender mercy. And by this, I think that we're starting to practice the prophetic by saying that God has already arrived. He has already redeemed. And he is enabling us to be his people 
And Zachariah says all this before Jesus is yet to be born. And we sit in a similar place awaiting Jesus to still come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for your arriving. And I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And the fact that that was not your first arrival. I ask now that you would allow us to sit in this place to be reminded of these things and to encourage one another that you might receive all glory and all of our declarations of praise and blessing. In your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.